I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Corinthians this morning. We have a lengthy passage in front of us. I'm not going to be able to read all of it, I don't think. Um, we're going to begin reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7. We'll read through the end of that chapter and into chapter 11, at least to verse 15, perhaps 21. I'll bring out the New King James Version, as is my custom. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning verse 7, God's Word declares, Do you look at things according to the outward appearance? If anyone is convinced in himself that he is Christ, let him again consider this in himself, that just as he is Christ, even so we are Christ. For even if I boast somewhat more about our authority, which the Lord gave us for edification and not for your destruction, I shall not be ashamed, lest I seem to terrify you by letters. For his letters, they say, are weighty and powerful, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. Let such a person consider this, that what we are in word by letters, when we are absent, such we will also be indeed when we are present. For we dare not class ourselves or compare ourselves with those who commend themselves, but they, measuring themselves by themselves and comparing themselves among themselves, are not wise. We, however, will not boast beyond measure, but within the limits of the sphere which God appointed us, a sphere which especially includes you. For we are not overextending our th- ourselves as though our authority did not extend to you, for it was to you that we came with the gospel of Christ, not boasting of things beyond measure, that is, in other men's labors, but having hope that as your faith is increased, we shall be greatly enlarged by you in our sphere. To preach the gospel in regions beyond you and not to boast in another man's sphere of accomplishment. But he who glories, let him glory in the Lord. For not he who commends himself is approved, but whom the Lord commends. Oh, that you would bear with me in a little folly. And indeed you do bear with me. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. For I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted by the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to the most eminent apostles. Even though I am untrained in speech, yet I am not in knowledge... But we have been thoroughly manifested among you in all things. Did I commit sin in humbling myself that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you free of charge? I robbed other churches, taking wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything I kept myself from being burdensome to you, and so I will keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no one shall stop me from this boasting in the regions of Achaia. Why? Because I do not love you? (laughs) God knows. But that what I do, I also continue to do, that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which we boast. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. 
Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their words, works. I say again, let no one think me a fool. If otherwise, at least receive me as a fool, that I also may boast a little. What I speak, I speak not according to the Lord, but as it were foolishly in this confidence of boasting, seeing that many boast according to the flesh, I also will boast. For you put up with fools gladly, since you yourselves are wise. For you, for you put up with it if one brings you into bondage, if one devours you, if one takes from you, if one exalts himself, if one strikes you on the face. To our shame I say that we were too weak for that. But in whatever anyone is bold, I speak foolishly, I am bold also. Well, this morning I want to begin with a little bit of an account to review last week and also to introduce this week. Just a quick reminder that we are really dealing in Jude with the phrase rejecting authority as a description not only of what false teachers do, but what they lead the church to do. And our focus and attention has been how do we keep them from creeping in unawares? How do we keep alert to this kind of direction of thought and philosophy of life that puts us in such opposition to the purposes and desire of God for us. How does it creep in? And it doesn't creep in by saying, here I am and I'm going to lead you to rebellion. It creeps in, as we have seen, in some very benign ways, we think, uh, that we hold to. And many of the things we've talked about, we have embraced as this is good for society, this is God's purposes at work, and this is what it means to be in a Christian nation, things like that. We have found that, in fact, they lead to the very rebellion that is described here in Jude, of rejecting authority. And as we're going to see the third description there as well, of speaking evil of dignitaries, The example I want to use to review a little bit of last week, because this is a good example. This is one when someone went right on the brink of it and stopped. And did not fall into the sin of rebelling against authority. Remember last week we talked about that one of the seeds of rebellion that we find consistently in God's word from Satan and and the demons uh, into... Israel in the wilderness, and even into the New Testament. (coughs) Sorry. Can you give me a drink, Bill? I would appreciate it. Thank you. I think I sang too hard or something. One of the... um, traits of rejecting authority is considering yourself equal to authority. Satan wanted to make himself equal to God. And we can do this in two ways, either by lowering God or elevating ourselves. Usually it's elevating ourselves to the level of those in authority. And of course, in our culture, we have propagated the idea of equality to the level of religion. 
<clears throat> and it is evident that without an, a biblical view of what that means and entails, that we end up rejecting authority. And so, from Satan himself, I'll exalt into heaven, I'll be like the Most High, to the sons of Korah, says, hey, we're all priests, we're all the sons of, Eli, of, of uh, Levi, to those who were in Nazareth, said, hey, you're just one of our townspeople, we're all equal here, who do you think you are, Jesus, to the Pharisees, who said, hey, we're sons of Abraham, too. To those who contended with Paul, all felt that they had equal status. Not just equal position before God, but equal status, equal authority. And God counts all of those as rebellion, as rejecting true authority by claiming equality with it. Well, I think there's a good example of how do we pull back from that? How do we retract ourselves if we've gone down that road as far as so many of us have in our American culture and philosophy? How do we pull back? How do we guard ourselves against that notion that is so pleasing to us because it elevates us? I'm equal to. And it is evident in our speech, in our uh, mannerisms uh, that we hold to that and cherish it too highly within our families and relationships between husbands and their wives uh, in churches and in society at large how do we pull back how do we get back to a biblical balance I think a good example out of the Old Testament is a guy named Job You remember him, right? <clears throat> a righteous man. Perfect man. Bible never pins sin on this man. He leads his family in a godly way. They are godly young people who are also wanting to serve the Lord in righteousness and truth. We find him as a model individual. Um, we would line him up with comparables of Enoch and Joseph, things of people, individuals like that. And we find him becoming the brunt of trouble. That you and I understand aren't, isn't deserved, and he understood that as well. This isn't deserving of, I've not done anything to deserve this, in the sense of the human idea that suffering is punishment for something. We learn that as children, and rightly so. And so Job engages his friends, and they accuse him of all this error and wrong, and he defends himself because there was no error and wrong in his life that God was punishing him for. They're insistent upon it, and he is equally insistent that none is the case. I am innocent, and yet all this has befallen me. And towards the end of the book, Job begins to build his defense. And he says, oh, that I could have a little courtroom 
before God and I could bring my case. And you and I would look at his case and say, it's a strong one. He didn't defraud poor people. He took care of his family. He took care of the poor. He was a, a true, righteous man following after God with all of his heart. He sacrificed offerings for sins that he might not know were sins. He offered sacrifices for sins his children might have committed without realizing it. That's how genuinely concerned he was about dealing with sin in his life and in his family. He begins to build his case, and it's a pretty solid case he's got. I haven't been dealt justly by God. I have not deserved this, and I want to speak my case to God. God's not here, so I'm going to talk to you four friends, and I'm going to build the case, and he's a fantastic lawyer. And we come to say, yeah, what's going on here? And he comes uh, very close to that point of thinking, I have a claim to justice and fairness by which I can challenge God himself. And he comes right to that precipice. And he is brought down a notch by a guy named Elihu in his speech, but ultimately, it's not until we get to chapter 38 of Job that God comes on the scene. Now, in the midst of a whirlwind, he comes to Job and basically says, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You really think you're going to go head-to-head with me over what is just and fair and right? You're going to engage me in a courtroom. God comes and says, who is this? Who darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. God says, you think you have a case? You think you can walk into the courtroom with God as the opposing attorney and think you can present a case? Who do you think you are? Who are you? And we have the description that God holds over his entire creation and powerful presentation of himself as the all-powerful creator of all that exists, the wise, the righteous, the just one. And Job's response is wonderful. Here's Job's response. He interrupts because he's been asked some questions. He doesn't really interrupt. He's going to answer. In Job's response, we get A few chapters later, it says, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. And God again challenges him. Chapter 40, verse 7, Now prepare yourself like a man. I'm not done. (laughs) You think you're something? And now Job has already responded and says, Oh, what, what was I thinking? I spoke way out of turn. He is God. 
I'm just a vile man and I need to cover my mouth. And finally we get to the second response of Job in verse chapter 42. He says in verse 2, I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You ask who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Listen, please, and let me speak. You said, I will question you, you will answer me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes, I seize you. Therefore I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is how you come back off the cliff of rejecting authority is you understand the purposes of God in authority are sometimes beyond, sometimes, many times, most times, and for some of us, all the time, beyond our understanding. What is he accomplishing? What is it? I don't see the whole picture. Well, you're never going to see the whole picture because you're just a little puny man. God is the one who has the whole picture. Now, we are in a blessed condition, and we know what was happening from chapter 1 in Job, what was going down. But Job didn't. Job didn't realize that suffering is what happens when you are a qualified champion for the cause of God in heaven. Yeah. God says, you are my champion. I selected you for this task to champion my cause and shut Satan's mouth in heaven. Do you know why we train elite soldiers, the SEALs and people like that, and put them through enormous training and thin them down and thin them down and thin them down and thin them down until we have the very, very, very best Well, it isn't so they can sit in an office and look good in their uniform. You know what we do with the very best of the best of the best that we have? We send them into the very worst environments to do the hardest jobs. Job was God's SEAL team. And God sent him into the very worst environment to be his champion. Because he was the best on earth. We understand that because we have chapter one. Job didn't have that. That was beyond his understanding. And so God comes to him and says, Who are you to question your commanding officer? Who are you to come and question me? You were privileged to be chosen to suffer what you suffered because there was an eternal and a heavenly, powerful act that was done, and that is you closed the mouth of the accuser of the brethren. You shut his trap for this generation. Wow. Yeah, you are our best. And yeah. You had to endure a lot for that task. It was a hard one. 
God doesn't enlist the many and the weak and the cowardly. He enlists the best, the bravest, and the strong in righteousness and in spirit. And he enlisted Job. Kind of puts the whole thing on its end, doesn't it? So when we begin thinking that we are here to challenge authority and what is God doing putting us under this president or that president or this mayor or that mayor and I've griped about art probably as much as anybody else but I don't have to drive on it so I just have to walk from upstairs to downstairs to get to my job so um, art doesn't get in my way. But um, we can complain. Why did God put that as my husband? That as my pastor? That as my Mother or father, who are you? You see, your challenge isn't against the individuals you're talking about. It's not against these who are in authority. It's against the one who put them in authority. I want you to understand what God did to Job. He put Satan, he gave Satan authority over Job. You thought your boss was bad. God gave Satan authority to destroy Job's life. Take away everything you own. Take away your entire family except for the one that's going to chide you through the whole thing. Take away your health. Satan had that kind of authority. Why? Because God, as Job says here in chapter 42, has a purpose. God has purpose. I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. And we also know from God's word that God's purposes are good. Therefore, our benefit. And here Job is given the opportunity to be the champion of righteousness, and all the angels are sitting there going, Wow! Wow! And come on, let's all face it. We go to the war movies and the hero movies to watch them do wow things. And when they, we talk about wow, they take on unbelievable enemies, one against a hundred, and they overcome them. Sometimes they die in the midst of that, the tragedies that we have lost track of largely in our society today, but back in the day of real storytelling, epics were usually very tragical. Your hero died, fighting for his nation or his family or his cause, and we applauded it. And so we have this example of Job who goes, oh, what was I thinking? What was going in my head? Who am I to question God's purposes? Now remember, as far as we know, Job doesn't know what those are yet. Maybe down the road when Job's had a bunch more kids and his wealth has returned, maybe God comes and says, hey, just so you know, back there, when things were so bad, you were my champion. 
I gave Satan authority over you so that you, by righteously enduring it without blaming me, could demonstrate that his accusations don't stand. Wonderful example of someone came right up to there and thought he had a right and a privilege and thought he was equal to the task of entering into the courtroom of justice and taking on God. And then backed right down. Says, no, 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 no. What am I thinking? I don't have understanding. And he describes himself as vile. He describes himself as foolish. He describes himself as, as um, without understanding. And these things are just too wonderful for me. I did not know this stuff. And so you don't know God's purposes. But we know that God is the Lord of all the earth. That he is going to do what brings him glory, whether it be in our presence or in his presence among the angel hosts, it's going to bring him glory. And through that, sometimes to enable that, to accomplish that, he puts over us authorities that we don't understand, we don't like, we don't want. And rather than rejecting authority, which is really rejecting God's purposes, the Bible tells us, endure. Figure it out. This also transitions us into today's message. So I'm finally, that's my introduction. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us and for your word and for the declaration that you've given to us of your purposes, that you really are at work in all things for our good, for all those who love you and are called according to your purposes. And we know that those purposes are not simply to make us miserable, but rather to enable us to have great victories. And that those victories require heroic efforts. And we all know that that involves suffering. Trials, endurance, tests of our limits. Lord, help us to understand your word better today because of our time together now. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, what is the second seed? The first seed we talked about was equality, thinking I could be equal with the authorities around me, and therefore I can be their judge, I can complain, I can, I can just not acknowledge it. He's not my president. And uh, while liberals are saying that now, I want to remind you that it was conservatives that founded that statement in our last president. To our shame. The second seed that I want to talk about that brings us to that place of rejecting authority that can often sneak in in very subtle ways and sometimes not in so subtle ways. But we allow it to come in, and again, it is something that strokes our ego a little bit, and that is discontentment. Discontentment. 
a false teacher comes in and begins to make it sound like we're kind of missing out. You know, and I've had to deal with this in our last church. I remember Cal came into our church, and he went around and talked to everybody and and uh, whisper, whisper over here, whisper. He'd go and visit them, and he had a little card. Uh, and when someone comes to your church or is a retired person and has a business card, um, beware, okay? <laughs> it's the only time I've ever encountered it, so and I'm bewaring it from now on. His card said, problem solver. So it said on the business card. Um, couldn't have been more opposite of what he should have been advertising. So what did he do? He took people aside and says, oh, you know, let me, just like Absalom at the gate. I'm oh, pastor doesn't have time for you. Pastor doesn't really care. Blah, blah, blah. And then it became Pastor Kramer as well, and the deacons, none of us cared for them like he would care for them, and he would listen to their problems, blah, blah, blah. And pretty soon there was a spirit of discontentment that was in that church, and I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. There was a contentious spirit. There was, and I, I got nowhere with anybody, ministry-wise. And we finally started coming out, and this was sometimes with my own family, not my wife, but, but uh, my sister and her husband, and they were in the church, and I was like, what is going on here? And he very methodically sowed seeds of discontentment among the people because their pastor wasn't meeting their needs. But he could meet their needs. After all, shouldn't we all have pastors that meet our needs? And he was wonderful being able to identify individual felt needs. And, and uh, some of the people he, he was able to grow discontentment in, I was meeting with weekly. That wasn't enough. Pastor doesn't care. And we have seeds of discontent coming in. Discontentment towards the leadership or authority, and I've, I've seen that happen as well. In my own family, we had a gal that kept saying these same words to my wife. I don't know how you can live with that man. I don't know. And maybe some of you feel that way, but she's great. Um, that's how. <laughs> she's a great wife. That's how she lives with me. And it affected her. And I was like, what is going on? I can't do anything right in this house. There was a season there. It was like, what is happening? And we finally ferreted out the poison. You deserve better. You need your needs met. What do these have in common? They are putting in discontentment even as they're stroking your ego. And this is what false teachers do. Paul had to deal with it. Jesus had to deal with it. Moses had to deal with it. Do you remember the people there in the, across the Red Sea? They're over there. And what do they kept saying? Oh, we miss the leeks and the garlics of Egypt. 
We're hungry. We're thirsty. Let's kill Moses and go back and beg Pharaoh to take us back. When did it become Moses' fault? But that's what their conclusion was. I'm discontent. Let's kill Moses and go back over here. Maybe Pharaoh will take us back. And God says, step back, Moses. I'm going to start over with you. I'm going to kill all them. And Moses, the one they wanted to kill, becomes the intercessor to save their lives. But I want you to see where discontentment begins and where it ends. It ends with abhorring the authority and rejecting the authority that God has placed over you because it is their fault that you're not getting your needs met, that you're not satisfied, that you are not content, uh, that um, you deserve better. I deserve a better husband. I deserve a better wife. I deserve better parents. I deserve better pastor, church, nation, president, mayor, I don't know, boss, supervisor. I deserve better. I work hard, I don't get the recognition I deserve. That is the seed of discontentment. And rightly should our daily attitude recognize, <laughs> thank you God for your grace and mercy that I don't get what I really deserve today. Because what I really deserve is misery and death. Punishment for my sins. But here comes the false teacher. Oh, you know, you're special. And you're precious. And you're not appreciated. And this is the beginning of the error that will lead, the seed that leads to rejecting authority. Jesus had to deal with it too from his own apostles. They wanted to make him king. They wanted a kingdom. They wanted all of that. And one of them thought, well, if Jesus isn't going to get us there, I'll push him along. I don't know if that was Judas's motive, but it certainly fits in there with the line of thought there in God's word that, uh, and his response to the fact that instead of Jesus becoming, overcoming his enemies, he is, seems to have been destroyed by his enemies. Judas didn't stick around to see the resurrection. And he realizes, oh, it didn't accomplish what I wanted to accomplish, and he kills himself. Never seeing the victory at the end of the tunnel. So we can speculate a little bit as to Judas's motive. Some of it is greed, but it all comes down to discontentment. Jesus wasn't taking him where he wanted and he thought he should go. This is Jesus. Yeah, people are discontent with Jesus. We're going to look at another one next week when we specifically with Jesus. With Paul, here comes some more eloquent people, and Paul says, you know, I'm not really a trained speaker. Uh, and he wasn't. He, he admits it. He says, yeah, I, I'm just not, I don't have that persona that I walk in the room and everyone goes, ooh. I'm not that person. I, I have a lot of knowledge about God and I have a passion to share it, but I'm not a trained speaker. And so here comes some very eloquent people coming into the church saying, 
Oh, you listen to that guy, Paul. Isn't he boring? Doesn't, aren't his mannerisms annoying? Uh, man, he puts people to sleep and they fall out of windows. He's so boring. We forget the fact that he can raise you from the dead after you fall out. Forget the good stuff. They're only going to emphasize the things that are going to make you discontented. And this can happen not only on an ecclesiastical level, as I've said, in your family, you can easily become dis- discontent with the authorities that God has placed over you. Whether it be your husband or your parents, you easily, it's easy for it to happen. In society, it is so easy to be discontented over my teacher, my boss, my manager, my supervisor, my mayor, my governor, my president. Because I deserve better. And the seed of discontentment is what draws it out. And Paul in 2 Corinthians from our Bible reading today pulls this all out. He says these are people that you need to be warned against. Because ultimately what they've done is they've taken an entire church community and turned them to question Paul's authority as apostle. They came in with more eloquence. They came in maybe with some high references. But they came in with a message that the Corinthians liked. Not the truth. Paul says this is another gospel. This is another Jesus. This is a whole other religion they're teaching you with all the same terminology. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, by the way. They still use our terminology to teach a whole other religion, a whole other Jesus, a whole other gospel. It's still going on today. Nothing new under the sun. And Paul, one of the facets they do is they undermine authority. And, and they undermine the ones that are called of God to lead the church in truth. And, and it's recognizing it not only in cults, but in... Uh, even some good movements, uh, the house church movement uh, was notorious for not having qualified people to teach God's word. And so they sit around and, and um, over coffee and around the dinner table and, and not necessarily having the truth, just having what we want to hear. Because it wasn't just a movement against organization, it was a movement against authority. Again, we're all equal, we all got our coffee cups, we all got our Bibles, we're all filled with the Holy Spirit, and so we can all teach each other. We don't need the organism and organization of the church. We don't need pastors. But I'm pretty sure the Bible says God gave some, not all, as we said last week, to be apostles, evangelists, pastor-teachers and prophets. Some. They're to lead. And it's obvious from Scripture that the church met, even the Corinthian church at this point, was meeting weekly, that they had a structure that got that Paul, everywhere he went in Acts, it says that he established what? Authorities. Over the churches. Elders and bishops. Over every church he started. So yes, we can pick on the Jehovah's Witnesses that believe that I'm the Antichrist because I'm a paid clergy member. 
That is their position on all paid clergy members that we are in cahoots with the devil. Um, but we, are, we can equally see it on this other part of the spectrum of the rejection of that authority. And that discontentment was raised up. Oh, Paul, yeah. Isn't he boring? And Paul says, yeah, I am. But God is powerful. And he can use my weaknesses to his glory. So he says, what do you want me to boast about? Because they love to boast about themselves and I'm not going to do that. He says, I'm going to boast in one thing. I'm going to boast in my infirmities, he says. And he builds this whole argument through three chapters. He commits three chapters to this whole defense of his place to be able to tell them in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and apparently one other Corinthians we don't have in our Bible that he references, uh, at least three letters, why he has, from a distance, the authority to set this church's house in order, to correct them, to admonish them, to rebuke them. Because ultimately, that is what the false teacher wants, is to reject that authority and let us go together, group hug, group hug, let us go together down this other path. Well, the other path is a different Jesus, a different gospel, a whole different message. But we're doing it in love. Together. I grew up on a farm in Minnesota. Sheep love to stay together. They love staying together. Sometimes they wander off um, grazing and not paying attention and get lost. That does happen because they're kind of dumb too, but, but they love staying together. And that's why sh- sh- sheepdogs have such a great, if you ever watch a sheepdog's work, you know, they just move a flock because the flock's kind of kind of like schools of fish too that way. They just kind of move together. They love being together. But sheep without a shepherd soon perish. They'll stay together and they will die together. Paul says, I'm not going to try to match degrees and credentials with these guys. I'm not going to go on their level of boasting. They want to boast about who they studied under, what happened in their last minutes, whatever. Uh, Here's what I'm going to boast about. I'm willing to suffer anything to get the gospel into people's hands. And I don't want to charge them a dime. In fact, I'll work my own job to make sure that that happens. That there's nothing between you and Jesus that I would create. says, you want me to boast? I'll boast on this one thing. 
I'm willing to suffer anything to get you the gospel. Are they going to boast about that? No. What has he endured? And Paul, later in chapter 11, talks about it. He says, I've been, here we go. Uh, (laughs) Oh, where does it start? Verse 23, it really starts. He talks about stripes above measures, prisons more frequently, and deaths more often from the Jews. Five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep in journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of Gentiles, perils in the city, perils in the wilderness, perils in the sea, perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil and sleeplessness, often in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to stumble and I do not burn with indignation? If I must boast, I will boast in things which concern my infirmity. Fundamentally, those that come in and stroke our ego and lead us into this state of discontentment are doing it to serve their own interests, not the purposes of God. One of the wonderful examples. And again, Job comes right up to the cliff of possibly turning discontent. He's processing and processing and processing, and just as he comes to that cliff, out comes Elihu, and out comes the whirlwind and corrects him, and he corrects himself in response. How easy to be discontent. You took everything away. I deserve better. Well, that was essentially his argument, but he wouldn't take it to the point of rejecting authority. He was on the cusp. But because he's a righteous man and seeking the truth, I want an audience with God. I want this, and God says, okay. (laughs) Here you go. Wham! Oh, what was I thinking? (laughs) Why did I ask for that? God has his purpose. Why am I discontent? Where does that come from? These are the seeds of false teachers. This is the seed of Satan himself. And that's why Paul even lists that and says, um, these people come to you as your friends. They come to you uh, all honey and and sweetness and... and That's all I can say. I, I just... And not because I'm just a hard person. It's just... Yeah. Anyway, he says, no wonder they come this way. You know why? Because Satan comes as an angel of light. He doesn't walk up to you with horns and a big, long, forked tail and red thing. That's not how Satan walks around. He's walking around as angel of light. Every time I see these after-death experience testimonies, they keep talking about, I saw this light. I was like, huh, probably you did. Doesn't mean it's God's light, does it? What is creating our discontent? What generates it? And these errors come in and they 
and they seek to propagate themselves, and the first thing they want to do is to build discontentment so that you will reject the authorities that are, that you might follow together with them, and you end up with the blind leading the blind. And that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, 2 says, I'm afraid for you um, because you may well put up with a different gospel, a different spirit, and a different Jesus. You may well put up with that. You will well tolerate someone changing the entire truth of Scripture to suit your discontent. I want and deserve better. My needs aren't getting met. Whenever someone comes and tells me, I says, well, whose needs are you meeting? I don't come here on Sunday wondering if you're going to meet my needs. Do you? I come here with one objective every Sunday, and that is to see whose needs I can meet. I don't desire, nor do I accept your pats on the back. I don't want them. I'm only interested in one person's approval rating, and that's my Heavenly Father's. I have one objective. Please God by doing the work that he has given, and that is to meet the real needs, not the felt needs. Sometimes they're the same, but not always. The genuine needs of this flock. You need to hear God's word. You need to know it. You need to be encouraged. You need to be edified. You need to be strengthened. You need to be rebuked. You need to be corrected. All those things. Word of God is the mechanism, the tool to do those. I'm not here to have my needs met. Are you? See, that attitude is going to bring discontentment in your life because there is no way I could ever meet all your needs. Because I'm not God. I know that's surprising some of you. But I'm not. I'm a vile wretch that's nothing. I don't know anything. I don't understand anything. I'm here to do my master's bidding. Are you? Or are you just here for yourself? That'll bring discontentment. And that's what false teachers come in. And, and when I see people church shopping and, well, I need a program for junior and I need, I, I really like choir. The music has got to be just like this and I need this and I need that. And I go, where are you? I just, you just got to say, well, you're not going to find that here. You might as well keep going down the road because I love it. And they come and says, how can I help? Do you need me? Not here's what I need. Do you need me? We say, well, the body can always use an extra digit. <laughs> you see, the seeds of discontent come in and Satan uses them to destroy your submission to authority. It happens in your home too. 
He's not good enough. He's this, he's that. How easy it is to do that against your husband. Against your parents. You know what? They're just people doing the best they can, but God's put them in your life as authorities to do God's purposes. And if Satan himself is your husband, the Bible says without a word you'll win him by your submission and your spirit and an attitude. That's my understanding of Peter. says even when they don't obey the truth, you, without a word, can win them. Maybe the word he's saying you not to say is complaining about his authority and the exercise thereof. And again, in our society, we are seeing a horrific, natural consequence of decades of inbreeding discontentment into our society. It is the entire purpose of advertisement, of media, is because nothing will match up to your romantic novels or shows. Nothing will match up to it. Nothing in this world can live up to what you see on your television screen or computer monitor. Nothing. And it breeds discontentment. And then the advertisers say, hey, Johnny has more toys than you do. Well, I need more toys. And it will never satisfy. And ultimately, what that brings you to, that kind of discontentment, after decades and decades and decades and decades, eventually it's got to be somebody's fault. Because you deserve it all for free. And that has to be somebody else's fault if you have to work for it, earn it, or not have it. And whose fault can it be? It's not yours. It can never be your fault. That's kind of just a rule of... That is the rule of discontentment. It is never my fault. So whose fault is it? The man. Stick it to the man. And the man can be dad, husband boss, supervisor, teacher, politician, CO, right up the line. I deserve, I deserve is the watchwords of discontentment and its end is rejection of authority. Because you'll never blame yourself for your discontentment. You'll always blame those above you. It's their fault, and then you reject authority. It's my husband's fault that I don't have this. I reject that authority. It's my parents' fault that I have such a sad life. Whenever I deal with people like that, I say, just, I'm going to give you a trip. I'll pay the whole way, three months in Haiti. I'll send you three months in Haiti. Go live there without your parents. Then we'll see how bad your parents are. Discontentment 
brings us to rejection of authority. And this is something false teachers are masters of creating. But they have some help, don't they? They have the help, and the help is that we're pretty good at creating it ourselves. Because <laughs> we're selfish people. And so we come, and here Paul has to defend his whole ministry and his whole authority to correct the Corinthians and to get them on the right track of righteousness and, and, uh, and to, to help them notice the wolves in sheep's clothing that are walking among you saying, let's all sing kumbaya and be together and we don't need anyone telling us how to live or communicating to us God's truth. We don't need authority. Then they start devouring you. So God warns him. He warned me that might happen. <laughs> Are you ready to be a Job? And say, God, you work your purposes in my life. And I'm ready to be your champion. I'm ready to take on the tough assignments. I don't need the desk job. I'm really get ready to get out in the field and take the enemy on. In the muck, in the mire, in the jungle, in the forests, in the tundras, in the wastelands, I'm willing to be your champion by enduring with joy whatever you bring in my life because I trust you and I'll be content whatever I have. How could Paul minister? Because he was content. You, you study that in Philippians and Sunday school. I've learned whatever state I am to be content. God, this is contentment is great joy. It doesn't mean everything goes your way. It just means that you're okay with whatever way it goes. Because you believe God is good. And if he wants you to be the champion by suffering and enduring, then I'm going to be his soldier. I'd rather have a church full of Jobs that are struggling and dealing and, and being champions for God to shut Satan's mouth than to have a People like what Paul had to deal with in Corinthians and in Galatia too for that matter. And all these, they were dealing, letting these people slink into their midst, create discontentment, and then rejecting authority. And you're not rejecting Paul. You're not rejecting Moses. You're not rejecting your husband. You're not rejecting your pastor, your governor. You're rejecting God. Job says, your purposes, God, need to be done. And if I have to get out of the way, if you have to use me this way to make those purposes accomplished, I'll trust you. I'm sorry. I spoke out of line. Please use me. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you.
for a difficult area that we all struggle with, really, that you have so profoundly addressed in your word. And we've really just touched on the very, very, very tip of what you have given us in your word. You call upon us to submit to one another, to submit to our husbands, to submit to authorities. recognize them as something you have established. Lord, help us to be content. We are hearing the truth. You've placed us in these environments and relationships to do things that are beyond our understanding. We just don't know. We don't know enough. We have such a little sliver of knowledge of what you're doing. Not only in terms of space, but even in time. We we don't know how this plays out. We trust you. Lord, whether it seemed that you might abandon us or give us over to Satan himself, Lord, We want to follow you. We want to not sin with our lips, just as our example Job did not sin with his lips, though he struggled to understand. Lord, give us that spirit. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.